In this episode, we are going to cover one of the most inconsequential yet significant murders in the history of the American Mafia, that being the hit on one Ferdinand, the Shadow, Baccia. The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore, and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a longtime history buff and mob aficionado. As mentioned in the intro, today's episode is going to be slightly different than our usual in-depth biographies in that I'm going to tell the story of the murder of a low-level associate of the Luciano crime family, Ferdinand the Shadow Baccia. For those of you that listened to the recent episode on Mike Miranda, you'll probably notice that this content is repurposed, and I'm personally okay with that. The reason that I wanted to repurpose this story, uh, which is in the middle of the Miranda episode, is because it's an amazing story in its own right, and the consequences of this seemingly insignificant murder are enormous. The killing of Baccia, who was nothing more than a low-level family associate, had a ripple effect on the mob that played out not just over days or years, but decades. So what was the ripple effect, you might ask? Consider the situation in the early 1930s. The Castellamarese War had recently concluded with Charles Lucky Luciano established firmly as the victor, becoming head of his own crime family and the modern American Cosa Nostra being officially formed. There were five families in New York City and 20-plus families stretched across the United States, all working collaboratively together under uh, a unified set of rules. Just below Luciano in the pecking order was one Vito Genovese. Upon the creation of the Luciano crime family, Vito Genovese was named underboss, which is the number two position in the family. And Frank Costello was named consigliere, the number three position in the family. Uh, so this means that Vito was firmly entrenched in a position of power. And then the murder of Baccia occurs in 1933, uh, and the heat generated from law enforcement forces Vito to flee to Italy uh, for a stretch of almost 10 years. During that time, Luciano is also arrested and jailed on prostitution charges, uh, and he is sentenced to a huge, huge prison stretch. Uh, and after that, he names Costello as the acting Luciano crime family boss. When Genovese finally returns after his Italian exile, uh, Costello bumps him down to, to Capo Regime. Uh, now, Capo Regime, of course, as you know, is a prestigious position, uh, but Vito uh, certainly was a, was a, was a vain and proud, uh, proud man and had an ego, and he believed uh, that the position of Capo was far beneath uh, what he felt like his status was uh, at the time based on what he felt like he had earned. 
and to some degree, maybe he was right. And maybe this was Costello uh, trying to trying to pin him down and keep him down uh, and, and limit his power. But it engendered a lot of resentment on Genovese's part. Uh, Genovese felt like he should have been the boss uh, and not Costello. And ultimately, this resentment leads to a power play on the part of Genovese against Costello in 1957, uh, in which Genovese engineers the assassination, uh, in this case, the failed assassination of Costello. Uh, and uh, Costello is basically kind of moved aside and, and retires from the family. Uh, and then this, in turn, is followed uh, not long after by the actual successful murder of Albert Anastasia, which positions Carlo Gambino to take over as boss of the Gambino family. Uh, and then ultimately, this all leads to Appalachian. This leads to Vito's ultimate arrest uh, later on as Gambino and some of Vito's enemies uh, engineer his ouster and, and uh, his conviction uh, in 1959. Uh, and that leads to, quite frankly, Carlo Gambino and the Gambinos uh, becoming the preeminent Borgata over New York City and the entire country for the next 20 to 30 years after 1957. Uh, and if you even play it farther down the line, uh, Gambino leads to Castellano, Castellano leads to Gotti. Uh, and all of this comes back, uh, if you play back the tape, all of this comes back to, to one event, and that is the murder uh, in 1933 of Ferdinand the Shadow Baccia. So, like I said, if you kind of play back the tape, uh, all of these, these, th this ripple effect, these wild events likely never happen or go down much, much differently if Vito never has to flee to Italy. And Vito never has to flee to Italy if he first doesn't murder Baccia. And in hindsight, if Vito had to do it over again, maybe he'd think twice about hitting Baccia, knowing it ultimately would lead to uh, sort of a personal catastrophe for him. Uh, that being said, Vito's a proud guy. He's got a big ego, so I, I doubt it. He'd probably play it, play it the same anyways and just try not to get caught, but you never know. In the end, uh, it's impossible to know how events might have changed, but as you listen to this episode, I want you to think about the effects on the Mafia if this hit never actually went down, uh, and I want you to leave a comment uh, below if you're on YouTube to share your thoughts about how things might have played out differently if Vito stays and, and, and doesn't do this murder uh, and stays, uh, stays be behind in New York, doesn't go to Italy, uh, and stays firmly entrenched as the Luciano crime family under boss. Do you think he still becomes boss? Do you think uh, something else uh, entirely happens? Do you think Gambino ever becomes boss, right? There's a lot of ways that you can play this, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts below. Anyhow, uh, so let's get into the story. So here's the real story of the Baccia murder from the perspective of Vito Genovese primarily uh, and the subject of our recent biography, Michele Big Mike Miranda. And uh, I'm just going to I'm just going to give you this reminder, please mash that subscribe button. We're certainly trying to grow the channel uh, and, you know, we'll take all the followers uh, that we can get. Uh, for our videos and, of course, the, the audio version of the podcast. So hope you enjoy this episode. A 
According to FBI reports, in December 1933, a low-level hood named Ferdinand the Shadow Baccia steered a wealthy merchant to Genovese and Miranda as a favor, and the pair relieved the unsuspecting man of roughly $150,000 to $160,000. The two-stage scam involved a crooked card game and a fake machine that supposedly made currency, but instead allowed Genovese and Miranda to pocket the cash. Now, you'd think the issue might have come from the rich man who'd lost the money, but the victim of the ruse already knew one of the two most important lessons in life, wisely choosing to eat his losses and keep his mouth shut. Look at me. Never ran on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. Instead, the trouble for Genevieve and Miranda came when Baccia decided to demand his cut, a $35,000 share of the scam's proceeds. Considering who he was dealing with, this was really fucking stupid. Baccia was already in the pair's doghouse and steered the sucker to Genovese and Miranda as atonement for holding up a liquor store that happened to be operated by a dear friend of Genovese, one Tony Bender Strollo. Robbing a guy like Strollo by itself is enough to get a person killed, but for some reason Genovese and Miranda had thus far let Baccia off the hook. So when Baccia became too insistent to the point of annoyance, Genovese and Miranda decided it would be much easier just to murder him and gave the contract to Miranda's crew. The setup of this contract has striking, striking similarities to the murder of the character of Maury in the movie Goodfellas. Hey guys, I've been looking all over for you. Jimmy, Henry, how are you? Merry Christmas. Hey, listen, I need the money. Maury, relax. Relax, okay? Jimmy, I need the money. Relax. I'm relaxing. I need the money. I did what I had to do. I need the money. Miranda then ordered a local knockaround guy named Ernest the Hawk Rapolo to set up both Baccia, uh, as well as Baccia's accomplice in the liquor store heist, William Gallo, to be murdered. Ernie the Hawk Rapolo was originally brought to Miranda's attention by his close associate and fellow Brooklyn gangster Cosmo Gus Frasca. According to Rapolo in later testimony, Miranda said to him, Frasca tells me you're a good boy, that you could do a good job. Shadow and Gallo are no good. I want you to put Gallo and Shadow on the spot so they can be killed. Rapolo, perhaps to show how tough he was, suggested to Miranda that he could do the deed himself, to which Miranda seemed disappointed, but told Rapolo to meet him at a restaurant on Mulberry Street near Kenmare Street. At that meeting, Miranda introduced Rapolo to Genovese as Don Vitone, or the great man. It was at this meeting that Vito demanded that if Rapolo didn't want to put Gallo and Baccia on the spot, that Rapolo would have to do this piece of work in the particular way that Genovese wanted. According to Rapolo, Genovese referred to Baccia as a cokey bastard and Gallo as a pimp bastard, so it was fairly clear that Vito had it in for these two punks. At the meeting's conclusion, Miranda told Rapolo to go back to Brooklyn, lay low, and keep in touch with him, Frasca, and George Smurra. After some time, Miranda took Rapolo to see another of his associates, Peter DeFeo. DeFeo then told Rapolo to kill Gallo and that Smurra, Frasca, and another man would kill Baccia. It was at this time that Rapolo was paid $175. Both Baccia and Gallo were so hated by the mob that Rapolo recalled Miranda telling him that the pair had to be murdered even if it meant the hitman had to cowboy them, meaning shoot them wherever they were found, 
even in the middle of Broadway. Court records would later suggest that on September 19, 1934, at either 533 or 553 Metropolitan Avenue, Brooklyn, a group of hitmen fulfilled the contract on Baccia by shooting him dead inside a Brooklyn coffee shop known as the Circolo Cristofo Club and Cafe. Rapolo later testified that on September 18, 1934, with the help of an old prison associate, Rosario Sali Palmieri, he took Gallo to Coney Island in order to fulfill the second half of the contract. They proceeded to wine and dine Gallo while they waited for word on whether or not Baccia had been killed. Rapolo was to be paid 5000 for the hit on Gallo in total, uh, with 1000 going to his accomplice, Palmieri. After spending the evening in a hotel getting Gallo drunk, Palmieri excused himself to find out what had happened to Baccia. Once they had received word that the shadow had been executed, they got in their car to continue their evening and even made plans to go see a movie. As the men were driving to the movie somewhere around 14th Avenue in Bensonhurst, Rapolo pulled out his pistol, shoved it to Gallo's head, and pulled the trigger three times. Pretty damn dramatic, if you ask me. The only problem was the gun misfired, which left the trio in what I can only imagine was the most awkward situation imaginable. As Rapolo would later tell investigators, a shocked Gallo turned to Rapolo asked, What the hell are you doing? To which Rapolo replied, Nothing, I'm only kidding with you. The gun ain't loaded. Now, I don't know about you, but 99.9% .9 of people's first instinct would be to get the hell out of there. And while I don't believe that most anyone deserves to be murdered, this story had me personally muttering, what on earth were you thinking? In the end, it's highly likely that William Gallo may have simply been too drunk to fully comprehend all the machinations that were going on around him. So instead of fleeing immediately, Gallo stayed and Rapolo excused himself to go drop off the gun at the home of his girlfriend uh, after the joke had concluded. <laughs> What Ernie the Hawk Rapolo actually did when he got to his girlfriend's place was to slather the mechanically defective and most definitely loaded gun as well uh, as its firing mechanism with oil before going back outside again. Once outside, Rapolo, Palmieri, and Gallo continued their drive. Then suddenly, in front of 6603 13th Avenue in Bensonhurst, both Palmieri and Rapolo turned on the unsuspecting Gallo and threw nine shots in his direction, four of which hit the mark. Both the shooters thought Gallo was dead. After the shooting, Rapolo and Palmieri dumped the wounded man on the street and fled. Miraculously, William Gallo had somehow managed to survive, likely because of Rapolo's poor eyesight, to which I wondered, maybe Rapolo should have chosen another profession. Uh, if you've never seen a picture of Rapolo, uh, he's got an eye patch on. Uh, he apparently... Uh, you know, had wounded his eye uh, in some other gunfight uh, earlier on in his life. So he was really dealing with, with one eye. So I think he picked, uh, picked the wrong profession. Now, aside uh, from not killing Gallo, Rapolo screwed up this hit in another way. Out of pure ruthlessness, Mike Miranda had allegedly ordered that Gallo was to be doused in gasoline after he was shot and set on fire, a part of the plan that Rapolo also failed to carry out. The reason for this extra cruel step appears to be that Gallo, along with the previously murdered Baccia, had created such enmity within the underworld that the Mafia wanted to exact this as additional punishment and as a warning for others. The next morning, when Rapolo finally went to see Miranda, who was seething mad in Little Italy, Miranda informed Rapolo that he'd royally fucked this hit up and gave him what was probably an epically severe tongue lashing for good measure. 
according to the deadly Don Vito Genovese uh, by Anthony Stefano, one of Miranda's lieutenants, George Georgie Blair Smurra, yelled, why didn't you shoot him in the head like we did that other bastard? At this meeting, the decision was made by Miranda and the others to send Rapolo and Palmieri up to Springfield to lament for the time being until the heat that was sure to come had cooled down. So on September 21st, 1934, the two button men were driven to Springfield, Massachusetts by another future made member, Salvatore Little Sally Celembrino, in order to lay low. They were placed under the protection of Nicholas Camerata, a made soldier in the Springfield faction of the Genovese family. However, as Rapolo later recalled to police, Palmieri became suspicious that they were both being set up to be killed and fled Springfield immediately. Rapolo himself stayed for around two weeks before deciding to come back to New York. Unfortunately for Rapolo and Palmieri, the case had not yet cooled down and both men would be hauled in for questioning and eventually found guilty of assault in December 1934 after a reluctant gallo fingered them as his shooters. They were each sentenced to terms of 12 to 20 years for first-degree assault. Rapolo would end up serving 11 years worth of prison time for the gallo shooting. Apparently, there was some initial suspicion that both Genovese and Miranda were also involved in the Bacha hit, and two months after the killing, Miranda was charged in connection with the murder, and Genovese was hauled in for questioning as well. However, charges against both would eventually be dismissed for the time being, and two uninvolved individuals would wrongly be arrested and sentenced to prison. Seemingly insulated from the Bacha murder, both Genovese and Miranda both returned to their normal lives, with Miranda specifically dabbling in car sales in addition to other mob-related activities. However, their comfortability was short-lived as at the time, New York's special prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey was launching a full-court press against the Mafia. With law enforcement scrutiny heating up and the threat of several potential rats to implicate them in the Baccia murder, both Genovese and Miranda decided to flee to Italy, where they would remain for approximately 10 years and until after the conclusion of World War II. At this time, Miranda told close associates that he'd be taking a vacation in, in Italy for a little while, and shortly thereafter, Miranda, now a fugitive, was spotted by FBN agents in Italy. So in essence, both Rapolo and Palmieri were left holding the bag for Genovese and Miranda. For now. Though he stuck to the code of Omerta and did his time without giving up Genovese or Miranda, Ernie the Hawk Rapolo would eventually have a change of heart after getting jammed up in several other cases that threatened to put him in jail for an even longer stretch than he had already served. In 1944, Rapolo's change of heart led him to become a government informant at which point he began singing about many crimes, including the Bacha murder, which of course would come back to bite Genovese and Miranda in the ass a decade after the fact. As a result of Rapolo's testimony on August 7, 1944, a grand jury indicted Mike Miranda along with his mentor Vito Genovese as well as Peter DeFeo, George Smurra, Cosmo Gus Frasca, and another man listed as John Doe, but with the alias of Sully, who we know was Paul Mary, for the murder of Ferdinand the Shadow Baccia 10 years earlier. Uh, as I just said, the Sully in this case appears to have been a reference to Rapolo's accomplice in the Gallo shooting, Rosario Sully Palmieri. The aforementioned indictment charges the five men as follows. Defendants on or about September 13th, 1934 in the County of Kings willfully, feloniously, and of malice aforethought shot and killed Ferdinand Baccia with firearms. 
Court records indicate that on August 2, 1944, Vito Genovese was placed under arrest in Italy. After some time in custody, he was returned to the United States where he was arraigned in Kings County on June 3, 1945, at which time he entered a plea of not guilty. The records indicate that the indictment had been filed on August 7, 1944, and that Genovese was in Italy at the time of the indictment uh, had been filed, and that he had resided continually in Italy since 1937. The court records also contained an affidavit of the detective in the case, Harold E. Fox, dated September 28, 1944. Detective Fox stated that his investigation indicated that on September 19, 1944, at or near 533 Metropolitan Avenue, Brooklyn, one Ferdinand Baccia was shot and killed. And the defendants, after the commission of the crime, met at a house on Mulberry Street and from that point were driven to Springfield, Massachusetts on September 21st, 1934, by Salvatore Little Sally Celembrino. On August 14th, 1944, due to the fact that the NYPD could not locate Miranda or any of the other suspects in the indictment, a bulletin was put out to all commands announcing that warrants had gone out for their immediate arrests. After Genovese was held for several months, the trial finally began on June 6, 1946, with Genovese as the only person present and, of course, uh, the marquee defendant. Mike Miranda and the rest of the co-conspirators were conspicuously absent, but no doubt monitoring the proceedings from afar. Some sources suggest that Miranda had simply stayed in Italy during the trial. Ultimately, the case against Genovese would fall apart completely as Rapolo's testimony, while compelling, failed to directly link the key conspirators to the crime. Additionally, the prosecution also ran into a thorny issue relating to a New York State accomplice law that required that a defendant couldn't be convicted solely based on the testimony of an accomplice to the crime. Due to this particular law, the prosecution would have to leverage additional witnesses who could corroborate the testimony. And this is where the far-reaching tentacles of the Mafia left the case against Genovese Miranda and their cohorts in shambles when several material witnesses in the case turned up dead. One government witness, uh, Genovese associate Peter Latempa, had agreed to cooperate with authorities early on after Genovese fled to Italy because he believed that Genovese uh, would never be prosecuted for the crime. However, when it was announced that Genovese was being repatriated home to face charges, Latempa pretty much went, oh shit, and immediately contacted the Brooklyn DA demanding to be put in protective custody. Unfortunately for Latempa, he underestimated the mob's connections as less than a week after Genovese's return, he was famously found dead in his cell after taking medication for gallstones. An autopsy allegedly revealed that he had ingested enough poison to kill eight horses. There is much speculation as to whether or not Genovese had arranged this mysterious death, but the fact remains that Latempa was no longer around to testify. Another man who was reportedly going to appear as a material witness, a man named Jerry Esposito, was shot to death beside a road in Norwood, New Jersey. From a trail of blood that extended 150 feet south of where the body was ultimately found, Police deduced that the victim had been shot in an automobile and thrown out while it was moving very fast. So if you're keeping count, that's one ineffective witness and two dead potential witnesses for the score of Mafia 3, Law Enforcement 0. Without anyone to corroborate the testimony, the government's case collapsed. So on June 10, 1946, after a verdict of not guilty was announced, Judge Samuel Leibowitz had no choice but to throw the case out. 
Before wrapping his gavel and dismissing the case, he delivered the famous rebuke as Genevieve stood in the courtroom with what was described by those in attendance as a disinterested smirk. You are always just one step ahead of Sing Sing and the electric chair. You and your criminal henchmen have thwarted justice time and again by devious means, among which were terrorizing of witnesses, kidnapping them, yes, even murdering those who could give evidence against you. I cannot speak for the jury, but I believe that even if there was a shred of corroborating evidence, you would have been condemned to the chair. Let's bring this all back to our subject, Big Mike Miranda. Still in Italy, Miranda watched events with great interest, and three months after the case fell apart against Genovese, he decided to take his chances by returning to the United States from exile and surrendering himself at the Brooklyn police station. After Miranda turned himself in, prosecutors found that there was no additional corroborating evidence against him, and in January of 1947, the charges against him were dismissed. He walked briskly out of the courtroom after spending just five months in jail. Soon after, the rest of the fugitives, George Smurra, Cosmo Gus Frasca, and Peter DeFeo, turned themselves in and were also able to wiggle their way out of the case as well. So it appears their personal long-standing crisis was averted, which allowed both Genovese and Miranda to get back into the fold within the Luciano crime family. Of course, as time goes on, the freedom attained from beating this case set the stage for Genovese and Miranda to go on to influence events that would have far-reaching uh, impact on the American Cosa Nostra. As for Rapolo, shortly thereafter, he left prison early in what equated to repayment from the mob for his futile testimony against Genovese and Miranda. While the judge who released him expressed significant concerns for his life and even his friends had expected him to die, nothing actually happened to him in the immediate aftermath of the case. Rapolo's brother, Willie, uh, would claim that Mike Miranda personally told Ernie, Take care of yourself, kid. Don't worry about nothing. If you need anything, come to me. When a reporter asked Rapolo why he was still alive, he answered, Don't you know? I did Vito a big favor. A man can't be tried twice for the same murder. But the Mafia has a long memory, and eventually in 1964, Rapolo would be brutally murdered, with authorities finding his body in Jamaica Bay, Queens. Legend states uh, that Rapolo was personally murdered by John Sonny Francis, legendary underboss of the Colombo family. Okay, so that's it for this episode, another episode in the books. Uh, very soon we'll either be doing a new biography or beginning a series on reactions to famous mob movie scenes I haven't 100% uh, decided yet. As always, I really appreciate the support, and if you're on YouTube, please let me know what you thought about the episode in the comments below. Also, please mash that subscribe button on YouTube and hit the notification bell so you know when I've posted a new episode. If you're listening to the audio version of the episode, I'd appreciate it if you'd rate the show in order to help it grow uh, and just let us know what you think about the episode so far. Although I'm not super active on other platforms, feel free to check out our website at www.membersonlypodcast.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And as I end each episode, until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.